Let's just quickly chat about how we might want to structure this. Okay. You can kind of wing it. Here are the things I really want to capture. Um, and I, I, if you want, I can, I, I don't want to show you all the questions because I don't want it to feel stale. You know what I mean? And I've been studying the best people. They don't give questions in advance. Yeah. But the no, I, I prefer the questions you... just on the hit, off, off the cuff. Just go and I'll, I'll answer. I have answers for almost everything I saw on Twitter. I'm raring to go. Okay. All right. So Tom, welcome to Notes from the Front. Thank you so much for being our first guest. Oh, I'm so excited, Michelle. Thank you for having me here. I can't wait to get into this. Me too. Um, all right. So today we're going to talk about drug addiction, recovery, and advocacy for recovery. Tom is a recovering addict or recovered addict. How do you refer to yourself? I'm a recovering addict. We're always okay. we're always addicts forever now. So it's just about we're we're continuously working on our recovery to stay in recovery. Mm-hmm. And we should talk about that because I know that's one of the tenets of 12 steps, right? That's right. Which you went through. Okay. And you're an advocate for recovery and a very public one. Um, I can just share quickly, Tom and I became friends through Twitter. We were both tweeting about the drug overdose crisis in the streets of San Francisco, which is at this point internationally renowned. Um, Tom, maybe to kick us off, can you share sort of not the short version of your story, but maybe the medium version of your okay. story, how you got here today. And um, and then let's get into a conversation about what's going on in San Francisco, the politics, the ethics. Um, a lot of people want to hear from you. So I'll let you take us away. Great. Well, thank you, Michelle. So long story short, I had foot surgery in early 2015. And uh, after the surgery, uh, they had to reset my broken foot and put two titanium screws in it. They sent me home uh, with a 30-day supply of 10 milligram oxycodone tablets. Uh, I unfortunately did not use those tablets as directed. I got addicted to them because the one tablet every four to six hours was not doing it for the pain. So I started using two. And then one day I took three pills. And when I took those three pills, I kind of hit this euphoria where I was truly high for lack of a better term, uh, all my problems melted away. Any financial problems I was having, marital problems I was having, plus the pain were all gone for three or four hours and life was good. And I basically spent the next five years chasing that same high again. Uh, and that over that five-year period, it led me into financial ruin. Uh, I quit my job. Uh, I bankrupted my family. My house went into foreclosure. Uh, because I was using all my money to purchase drugs on the street because I couldn't get them from my doctor anymore. And I was spending about $210 a day on oxycodone tablets on the street. And this was throughout 2015 and 2016 and into early 2017, uh, when basically my wife figured out what was going on, cut me off from all the money. And uh, I only had a little bit of money at that point. So I switched over to heroin, which was a fraction of the price. You could buy uh, an eighth of a gram of heroin on the street for $10. And I started, uh, you know, becoming an intravenous drug user. I went and got some syringes, which are readily available throughout the city. And I started uh, shooting heroin, uh, gave myself sepsis from shooting heroin. I would miss my veins sometimes and I would get abscesses all over my body from different places I would try to shoot up. I ended up in the hospital in intensive care, uh, intubated with a tube down my throat. I almost died from the sepsis. Um, you would have thought that that 
that would have been kind of like the red flag to, hey, maybe you need some help and you need to stop this. But it's funny because in the hospital, they were actually giving me Dilaudid for the pain, which is another op opioid. So I was plenty high in the hospital. And then instead of stopping, I just continued to, to smoke heroin on foil. And later on, that, that uh, spiraled or transformed into fentanyl uh, towards the end of my time of using. And, uh, you know, basically the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was that um, one night, about two in the morning, I, I woke up from sleeping. I was in withdrawal from heroin and I didn't have any money, but my wife had some money in her purse that I think she was going to use for groceries. And I stole it. And I took the car and I drove down to the tenderloin and I didn't go home for 11 days. I went on an 11 day bender in the tenderloin, just using, uh, kind of just hanging out in the tenderloin. And, uh, finally after on the 11th day, I remember the police came knocking on the window of my car and I was passed out in my car and I had foil and straws and all this drug crack pipe. I had all this stuff everywhere. And instead of the police arresting me, they just told me to go home because my wife had filed a missing persons report on me. So I actually drove home and my wife was waiting for me with a packed bag saying, I got you a room at a drug treatment facility. You can either go there or you can get out. And at that very moment, I was in withdrawal from heroin. So I made the decision to leave and I walked away from my wife and my kids and my house. And uh, I proceeded to go to the Tenderloin where I lived on the street for the next six months uh, using heroin, crack cocaine, and eventually fentanyl. Um, and, you know, I, I stayed out there and I, I started to, to support my drug habit. At first I was doing what a lot of people are doing right now, which is boosting or stealing shoplifting to support my habit. I also signed up for general assistance. Uh, so I was getting a little bit of cash money from the city, um, and food stamps, which then I would sell the food stamps for 50 cents on the dollar to local merchants who would buy the food stamp card off of me for cash. Uh, and then one day, one of the drug dealers on the street came up to me and said, Hey, Tom, get us trabajo. Do you want to work? And I said, yeah. And he said, here, hold this. And he handed me a gym sock that was filled with a bunch of pre-wrapped bindles of heroin, crack cocaine, and little baggies of meth. And he said, put that in your pocket and don't move. And I did that. And he gave me a dime of heroin as payment. And I proceeded to start to hold drugs for the drug dealers out on the street. I became a mule for them. Uh, and that's how I was able to support my habit. And I did that for about, you know, two to three months pretty successfully. I was holding for like six different dealers at the same time. So I had plenty of drugs because I was holding their stash. Um, but I was holding their stash with the understanding that if I got busted with their drugs, that I took the fall, not them, because I had all their drugs. And sure enough, one day that happened on April 29th, 2018. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was holding for six different dealers. The police were doing surveillance of that block that day, and they came and they busted me, and uh, they busted me with all the drugs. I had four, over four and a half ounces of heroin on my on me at the time, and uh, you know if you've seen The Wire, you think you know you're going to go to prison or whatever. They booked me into county jail. I spent 16 hours in county jail, and they released me the next day on my own recognizance with no bail, back back into homelessness, back to the street. And uh, I just started getting caught up into that washing machine is what I call it after that, because I was basically a mark. So the police would just arrest me every couple of weeks and I'd start going into jail for three or four days, et cetera, until the sixth time that they arrested me. And they were like, you're, you're, uh, you've caught too many cases too close together. So we can't let you out anymore. Uh, the DA set my bail at 150,000 or the court did. 
and I actually sat in county jail for about three months where I sobered up. And uh, one day I went to court thinking I was going to get released and they did not release me and I was dejected. So I picked up the phone and I called my brother who I hadn't spoken to in a year. I asked him for help. He said, I'll help you on condition you go to rehab. And I agreed. So he bailed me out of jail and drove me. 150 grand? Well, no, they lowered my bail uh, over that three month period. They lowered my bail down to like, I forget. I think it was, I think they lowered it down to 5,000, I think. Hmm. And he bailed me out. I think, yeah, I think so because he put up, I think, $500 bond to get me out. And he bailed me out and he drove me to the Salvation Army ARC out on Valencia Street and literally like dropped me off with a nickel and two packs of cigarettes in my pocket. And I walked into this uh, rehab and I spent the next six months living there. uh, And that's where I found recovery. And that's how I got clean and sober. Um, I then became an advocate kind of by accident. I kind of call myself sometimes the accidental advocate. Um, Back in 2018, when SFPD tenderloin would arrest you, they would post your mugshot on their Twitter page. So my mugshot is still on SFPD Tenderloin's Twitter page to this day, saying that Tom Wolf was arrested with a bag of drugs at his feet. And that's because I was holding the drugs for the dealers. And when the cops came, I just dropped the bag, right? Uh, I wasn't dealing drugs. I was holding drugs, right? That's what, that's a common thing out on the street. And uh, I just posted a reply to that tweet because I was looking for a job. And if you Googled my name, Tom Wolf, San Francisco, the only thing that's going to come up is that mugshot. Huh. So, um, you know, I had to own it. So I decided I was going to own it. So I just replied to the tweet saying, I'm now in recovery. I'm eight months clean and sober. Thank you, SAPD and Salvation Army for helping me get back on my feet. And that tweet went viral. And it also went viral on Reddit. And the next day I had, uh, you know, NBC Bay Area and Cron 4 and all these news stations knocking on the door of the rehab I was at coming up, showing up to my parents' house unannounced, trying to do interviews with me. And that's kind of how I got discovered. And at that point, as my story started to get out, I decided to just keep talking about my experience in addiction, how it can happen to anyone from a middle-class guy like me to, you know, someone who's in foster care on the street can happen to a rich person. Addiction really does not discriminate. And how that can drive you into homelessness uh, as a result. And uh, it's been almost five years. I'll have five years of sobriety in June. And uh, here I am today, uh, kind of a a bigger advocate now. I've done some international stuff in Canada, Japan. um, And uh, I've done, you know, I've gone around the country and talked to, to different groups about the fentanyl crisis and the overdose crisis and solutions to homelessness. And uh, I'm very active here in San Francisco. And here I am today talking to you. That's my story. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tom. I will link the longer version of that story. I think we did, it was about 70 minute um, episode two years ago, which has much more detail. And I'll link in the show notes to that for people who want to hear a little bit more about the transition that you went through into the streets and then out. One thing that um, pops into my mind just before we move on from sort of the the background story. When you talk about that time you took three pills and you felt high, was that your first time ever getting high? No, I mean, look, I'm, I'm a Gen X guy. So in the 80s, I experimented, you know, like a lot of people, I dropped some acid and did some cocaine and smoked some weed and drank some booze and 
but I was never like I did never I had identified myself as an addict previously. Uh, I was mm-hmm. a weekend warrior guy that would go out on Friday nights for happy hour and have a couple of drinks, but nothing you know. Go to a baseball game, have some beers, nothing too crazy. Uh, but what's funny is that alcoholism runs in my family, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people say, and I I believe that there's some kind of genetic connection to have a predisposition to addiction. So there's several members of my family that are in recovery from alcoholism, but my addiction seemed to manifest with opioids. But prior to that, the only opioids I'd ever taken were for like, you know, my wisdom teeth. I had them pulled out that gave me Vicodin, you know, which is a low grade opioid. I never really had a major, major problem with it before. Got it. And so would you say from that moment on you were hooked or like, was there sort of a intermediate period, like between those three pills and ending up on the street, were you basically using painkillers every day? Yes, absolutely. I was hooked. I was using it every day. There was no breaks. Uh, you know, it's funny. The story is, is that, you know, I, when, as I was running out of pills, I tried to call my doctor to get more and it had only been like 10 days and they kind of laughed at me and they were like, are you okay? Why are you asking for more pills? And I just kind of brushed them off and hung up the phone and I started Googling, where can I buy uh, pills on the street in San Francisco. And it actually brought me to YouTube to several different references on YouTube to a place called Pill Hill, which is Golden Gate and Leavenworth in the Tenderloin. And I drove down there in my boot and all on my walking boot on my foot. And I found like five different guys that were selling a variety of different oxycodone pills. And I immediately started purchasing them. And from that point on, I was hooked. Uh, and my, you know, my addiction grew over time. So over that next year, year plus, my addiction grew to a peak of 560 milligrams of oxycodone every day, uh, which is why I was spending $210 a day. I was buying seven 80 milligram tablets at 30 bucks a pop out on the street. The sad, so basic, yeah. Just well, to the, clarify, ten days after your surgery, you were buying pills on the streets of San Francisco. Yeah. It's crazy. And 10 days prior, you hadn't even thought about using painkillers. Nope. Right. That's how fast it can happen. Right. I've seen this, um, by the way, just like anecdotally with friends who've had various surgeries, you know, knee surgery or even um, childbirth, people get opioids and the, I've, I don't have um, any experience with them. So I don't know. I've only once have had a painkiller and it made me extremely nauseous. It was after knee surgery. But yeah, it's been astounding to hear how quickly it gets in your... That's just incredible that 10 days after surgery, you were already in this extreme position. Well, yeah, because I went into withdrawal and that's the danger with opioids is they're highly addictive. And then the withdrawals from those drugs are horrible. It's like having the flu and the stomach flu and the, the cold sweats at the same time, plus this mental obsession with the drugs. And that's probably the strongest thing is that the obsession, like all I could think about was how to get more. And that overtook everything else that I was doing, including, you know, being a father to my kids and all that. And I have to own all that, but you can ask a lot of people in recovery. They'll tell you it's the same thing. Um, opioids are that strong. And that's why it's not the same thing as alcohol. It's not the same thing as weed. Uh, it's something a lot, lot more dangerous. And I'm and it's really frustrating to me to hear people conflate, you know, people that use alcohol versus people that use opiates. Opiates are far more dangerous in that you can get addicted so quickly. The kind of high that it gives you is different. Uh, 
the desperation that follows if you get dope sick from them is far worse than than if you just go out and binge on alcohol for a couple of days. Uh, and so people conflate those two things to try to destigmatize opioids because they want to promote like a safer supply of drugs or this radical kind of, I call it radical harm reduction. If there's harm reduction and there's radical harm reduction, mm. this kind of radical harm reduction uh, that uh, is just really helping to perpetuate everybody's addiction. And now we've got 17 million people struggling with addiction in this country, in the United States. I mean, when they talk about the overdose crisis, we own that here in the United States. That is, we're the only country on earth that has 100,000 people dying a year from drug overdose. Right. You know, I think so. One thing worth mentioning, so you're a very polarizing character in the world of drug addiction, right? You've got a lot of people who really do not want you telling your story. And I think this is actually the perfect segue into getting into some of the politics because you were married with a family, a homeowner, had a job, I presumably had health care, right? And this happened to you. Right. But a lot of the narrative in the, um, what should I call it? Uh, I'll just say a lot of the narrative around drugs is this is an output of trauma. It's because we don't have health care. It comes from abuse. Like there's this rhetoric that, that only people who um, are at the very, very bottom of you know, our society or most struggling are the ones who become addicted. Obviously, that's not true. Um, and additionally, you look at countries like Canada that have medical care, a medical health care system, um, and they have some of the worst addiction in the world in Vancouver. Um, so I think that 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 part about you, that this happened sort of as an outcome of surgery, that it started in the healthcare system, right? It started, I mean, your first taste of painkillers came from a licensed medical professional. Yep. They were pristine. Doctor prescribed opioids. Absolutely. Right. Um, and as I've been researching this topic to prepare for our talk, um, I did come across one person who said the major, I mean, the majority of this issue comes from doctors, that this, this crisis stems from doctors over prescribing. And I think we should talk about where to lay blame. You know, there's, there seems to, we, I don't think we as a nation have really, I'd be curious, actually, when you look at what happened, do you feel a sense of anger at anybody or blame towards anybody yourself others no i mean i have to own my part and so i do and in recovery we we learn to kind of let go of all that resentment right that's part of the way to heal the path the path to healing is to let letting go of resentment you process that you process that trauma and you try to let it go so i don't really hold anyone necessarily responsible but there's a few things that you touched on i want to talk i want to talk about one all those things that people talk about for people getting, you know, that use drugs, for people who use drugs, they always talk about people in marginalized communities, people of color. They talk about systemic racism. They talk about uh, wage differentiation, lack of housing as primary causes of substance use disorder. That's the term that they will use. Well, you know, the thing is, is that there are, there are shreds of truth in all of those things, but it's not the whole truth. And that's what they're presenting as the whole truth. And that leaves people like me and the millions of people like me in recovery that actually were kind of normal, if you want to use those terms in quotation marks, out in the cold. What about us? What about our story? The vast majority of people that, that, use, that, that are struggling with addiction right now are able to function at some kind of level. They're not homeless. Otherwise, we'd have 17 million homeless people on the street right now. 
there's only about 600,000 homeless people in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. We just have an inordinate amount here in San Francisco that's really complicating the response to homelessness and drugs and all that. It's all kind of really visible here in San Francisco. But what kills me is that they don't want to talk about how addiction is one of the drivers of homelessness. Yes, trauma is a driver of homelessness. But for someone like me, I would have never lost my home. I would have never lost my wife, my kids or anything if it wasn't for drugs. And you know, I want to make it clear that I still own this home, you know, because my wife managed to save it. But this home was on the auction block twice, not once, but twice because I did not pay my mortgage because I use all my money to pay for drugs. And there are people out there that are, you know, giving me a hard time for that. And I'm like, why did you want my wife and kids to be homeless? Hmm. Or did you want them to have a roof over their heads? I'm the one that was out on the street, but it was from my own doing because of the disease of addiction that I had. And it made me choose the street over my own family. And that's something that I have had to, to reckon with and, and deal with in recovery and own, to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. So there's that, there's that issue. And then there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other stuff that's going on behind this too, aside from what happened to me. Um, there's this whole narrative that's been painted uh, as that everybody that uses drugs is a victim. And because they're victims, we can't, we shouldn't try to force them or push them or nudge them towards recovery because they've already been victimized enough. And that kills me because the way I got clean is that I was held accountable, right? And we've systematically, systematically removed that accountability piece here in San Francisco. And if you take a walk down 7th Street in San Francisco right now from Market down to Folsom, and if you can look me in the eye after that and tell me that things are better now than they were in two, even 2018, I've got some beachfront property to sell you in Arizona. <laughs> well, funny you mentioned 7th and Folsom. I've been going there twice a day for the past month um, to take my dog to daycare. And the scene is astounding. Yeah, it sure is. It's, it's it crazy. It's harrowing. There are tents everywhere. There is trash everywhere. There are people in various states of consciousness. I see hundreds, if not thousands of people every single day in my 15 minutes each direction drive that look like they need help. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this with you is because I look at what's happening in San Francisco and I look at our government's approach and it does not feel right to me. It does not look like this just does. There's something, it feels deeply wrong that we as a society with the amount of wealth that we have, with the budget that we have, not just San Francisco, but California, United States, um, our current approach, just every, every element of it doesn't jive with my intuition of what, and, but I mean, I'm an outsider and I think you know, I talk to people about this often. I think so many people are observing what I have, you know, what you and I will see on the street. We, everyone in San Francisco is aware. Anyone who visits here sees it. And people don't understand it and don't know why. Why is it this way? And there's, it's such a complex issue. Um, so maybe just to start diving into, or maybe that's not the right way to phrase it. I'd be curious, can you, for people who are not, very familiar with what's going on in San Francisco. Can you walk us through what um, what are our policies right now? 
what and what and how is it different than other places in the country? And maybe it might even make sense to break it down. Like, what is the um I'm almost want to break it down. Like what do progressives believe about drug addiction? And then I was thinking of breaking it down by uh, progressive, moderate, centrist, you know, conservative, but maybe um, that feels a little overly structured. I'm, I feel like I'm just rambling here. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe you, can you walk us through like, what is San Francisco's current approach to drug addiction? Yes. Yeah, so that's a great question. And I like, I like to break it down between what is our criminal justice policy what is our drug policy and what is our policy towards homelessness? Yeah, uh, because perfect. all three, all three of those intersect, right? So you have to think of it like this. You have to roll the clock back uh, a few years. Criminal justice reform came on the scene in tw- 2012 in California. They passed a couple of different propositions, AB 57, uh, SB 57 and AB 109, which eventually transferred about 70,000 people out of the prison system and transfer them to county jails throughout the state and then eventually into probation and then eventually out of custody, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. At that time, California had about 110, 115,000 homeless people in the state of California, here in the state. Fast forward to 2021, at the end of 2021 into 2022, uh, we reduced the jail population by 70,000, which was great. I actually support that. But the homeless population grew to 186,000 about 70,000 more, which just so happens to be the same amount that got released from jail. Now, that may sound kind of crazy. I'm not saying that everyone that got released from prison ended up homeless, but a lot of them got released with no services. That's the problem. No infrastructure to support them. They went back to communities that there was no family for them there anymore, or the community did not welcome them back into their community. And they had barriers to getting jobs, all these different things. And a lot of them ended up, yep, right. Mm -hmm. A lot of them ended up on the street. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that in 2018, the San Francisco, and they still are today, was just barreling towards this kind of radical harm reduction model of body autonomy, where we should just support drug users, uh, removing law enforcement from the equation because that was, uh, that was criminalizing homelessness, uh, criminalizing drug use, and that was wrong and it was racist to do all of those things. And and all of that kind of sounded good, too, because we were going to offer drug treatment options from different harm reduction services and assisted outpatient treatment all the way over to residential treatment. The problem is, is that when they started to really roll that out big time, something happened. And that thing that happened is the arrival of illicit fentanyl onto our streets. It hit San Francisco hard in 2018. Right when I was getting off the street, I was already transitioning to fentanyl. I was already smoking it off a foil like everybody is doing today. And that that last high that I got on fentanyl is the closest thing I ever got to that very first high that I when I took those three pills in 2015. Mm. And I think that's why it's so it's so appealing to so many people, right? So stronger. Right. Stronger, a lot stronger. I can just share anecdotally. I have a friend who got fentanyl during childbirth pretty early on in the process. And she said every, they come back every half hour or something and give you a little more. She's like, no dose was the same as that first one. That's right. People say that about (laughs) meth too. That's right. And and that's called, people use this phrase chasing the dragon, right? Chasing the, I did the same. Well, chasing the dragon means a couple, it means that it also means smoking it on foil. That's also chasing the dragon, uh, all these different, you know, terms. 
So we have those two things happening, all, all those things happening at the same time, criminal justice reform, drug policy, the arrival of fentanyl. And then we have this, mm -hmm. we have this homeless policy of this hands off that we're not gonna, you know, sweep any more encampments. And you had this, the, 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 um, federal courts come down with, uh, the Boise ruling where you couldn't, uh, move people off the street, sweep people off the street, unless you had shelter for them. Uh, and then, Coupled with that, we put this entire focus on, into permanent supportive housing as the solution to homelessness. We, the solution to homelessness is to give people homes. You've heard that over and over and over. I agree. Mm -hmm. That sounds fine. Um, but where are the homes? They never got built. They still haven't got built. We're still waiting. But the irony on top of that is that San Francisco does have more permanent supportive housing units per capita than any city in the United States. So it's not like we're not trying. We are. But their problem is bigger than what we can do about it, right? But that policy has also made it virtually impossible or very difficult to do anything else. Like they don't want to build navigation centers anymore because shelters are carceral. You've heard that right. one, right? And I don't mean to be sarcastic, but if I hear that again, I'm going to be sick to my stomach because I've been in shelter. I've lived in shelters and I've lived on the street. And I promise you, Michelle, that while shelters aren't great, they are better than sleeping on the concrete, right? We should have enough shelters for everybody and we should compel people on the street to use them. So we've taken this hands-off approach. Now we can't even sweep encampments anymore. And so the encampments are becoming quasi-permanent in different right. parts of the city. You go down Willow Alley right now, there's, you know, 25 tents. And if you walk by those tents and you look inside the tent, everybody has a pipe. Everybody has some foil. Everybody has some straws. Everybody's on drugs. Everybody's struggling with addiction. So now you have this problem where you have Seven to 20,000 homeless people in San Francisco. For the 7,000 that are directly sleeping rough on the street, 80%, I would say 80% or more, are actively using drugs or are struggling with addiction. So now you have this twofold problem of housing and addiction. So what? So here, here comes the city, and they say, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna put you in shelter-in-place hotels during the pandemic, or we're gonna place you in permanent supportive housing, which is an old hotel." down the street in the tenderloin they take someone off the street that's struggling with fentanyl addiction they put them in a shelter in place hotel or permanent supportive housing which is usually an 80 square foot room with a bathroom sometimes no bathroom a shared bathroom at the end of the hall and no kitchen and they wash their hands check the box to get make sure they keep getting the funding and move on to the next guy and you know in 2020 2021 in san francisco they they had 161 overdose deaths inside permanent supportive housing. During the pandemic, where they put 2,130 people inside shelter-in-place hotels, they had at least, at least, and this number is low, 92 overdose deaths inside those hotels. And those hotels sued the city for over $26 million in damages. Right. Right. Oh, I read about those ripped-out carpets, holes in the wall. Yep. All the every, – everything stripped. Um before we okay, so before we go into too much more detail on all the reasons that we, well, you and I are both very skeptical of harm reduction. Can you walk people who aren't familiar with harm reduction through the logic and the beliefs um, around why it works? Because what you'll often see on Twitter when these debates pop up is people say things like, "We don't need another war on drugs. We shouldn't have war on drugs." You know, version two point that was failed. Those are failed policies. We need harm reduction. The data all shows that harm reduction works. Now, everyone, I constantly see this. The data shows. The data shows. 
And I've gone looking for the data and the only data I have found is on heroin, not fentanyl. And I have yet to see any data on harm reduction. Like what is the outcome? The only outcomes I've seen data on are, oh, we don't have overdoses in the in the safe injection site. Well, that makes sense because you have paramedics there. I I have not seen any data on harm reduction around meth and fentanyl specifically. Have you, can you, is there any argument that we should give credence to, to back well, this up? Because I mean, our government is bought into this philosophy, right? Yeah. This is our official city policy. We have needles being hit. We have, we, I think we give out 12,000 needles a day. It used to be 14,000. Now there's less because everyone's smoking instead of uh, injecting. But I mean, we give out 12,000 needles a day. We give out foil. We give out straws, which are by the way, elite, you know, the restaurants can't give out straws, but the nonprofits can, which I think is ridiculous. I think, I think the nonprofits have switched to paper straws now because of that. Um, really? And they also give out glass no. pipes for free. Yeah, they switch to paper straws now. Oh my god! And they give out. So glass we have environmentally pipes. friendly um, harm reduction kits, which I think should be called harm production kits. But what is what is the argument for harm reduction? Like, if there's any aspects of it that you do buy into. Can you walk us through those? Yeah. So there are aspects of harm reduction that I agree with. So number one, first and foremost, I agree in, I I support medically assisted treatment, which means methadone, buprenorphine, uh, other drugs, Vivitrol, other drugs to help people wean off of opioids and other drugs Mm -hmm. that they're using. There is no FDA approved medically assisted treatment for meth. You can take some anti-anxiety meds and stuff to help you, uh, but there's nothing that's that's kind of like a magic bullet, like buprenorphine seems to be more or less for opioid use. So I support that. And I support that because at the end of the day, fentanyl is so strong that you can't kick it cold turkey. You heard that, you've heard that term in the past where people white knuckle it, right? With, with heroin, where they just white knuckle it and they kick it cold turkey. You can't do that with fentanyl. You need help. And we have to recognize that because as the drug is 10 to a hundred times stronger than heroin, depending on how strong it's cut, is um, that means your addiction is 10 to 100 times deeper and the withdrawals are 10 to 100 times worse. So yes, you need some relief. And so I believe in that aspect of harm reduction. I believe in the distribution of Narcan right now, just because of the world that we live in. Narcan is an opioid reversal drug, which is usually in a nasal spray. It can also be in a syringe. If someone's in active overdose, you you spray it up their nose and it helps reverse or stop the effects of the overdose from happening. And the person literally comes back to life. And right. just, you know, with the fact that we have two people dying a day in the city, um, whenever I go out in the city, I carry a couple doses in my pocket because it's just the reality of where we live right now. Um, my kids both carry Narcan in their backpacks to school now because it's no the, the reality of the world that we're living in right now. I think it's awful that they have to do it, but it is what it is. So I'm a realist in those, in those areas. Um, the other aspects of harm reduction that could work are like, you know, the idea of that, you know, maybe you use less over time and you titrate and you kind of wean yourself off the drugs. Um, okay. You know, I can maybe buy into that, but that's, you know, all of that, the original tenets of harm reduction used to be to use safely so that you don't get AIDS, HIV, hepatitis C, those bloodborne diseases. That's where harm reduction was born out of. It was born out of the AIDS crisis, right. um, which makes sense, Right. Uh, but it's kind of morphed into this thing of where, you know, we're going to help you use safely 
and we're not going to put any kind of pressure on you whatsoever to even consider treatment options. We're going to make it 100% voluntary for you. In fact, we're going to support you along the way by giving you all the resources that you need to continue to use drugs for as long as you want because it's your body autonomy, even if you're homeless on the street and robbing stores to feed your addiction. That's what it has become. And really what has, has become the layer underneath that is that those activists and their activists um, and radical activists at that actually want to have full legalization of drugs. They, uh, they, they believe that if we legalize oxycodone or Dilaudid or other opioids and the government gives them out for free, that we're going to end this addiction crisis and the cartels are going to go out of business. And the first question I always have when I talk to people about this is that, have you gone and talked to the head of the Sinaloa cartel? Is he planning to just take his ball and go home? Or are they going to pivot to something else, which they're already doing now with Trank uh, to, to keep their users using and keep people buying their product? And they don't have a good answer for that because the, the fact of the matter is, is that they don't know. And the only example that we have to use is marijuana. We legalize yeah. marijuana, right? Great. Yeah, everybody's cool. You go get your edibles, all that stuff, right? We, the black market, the marijuana black market in California now is bigger than it's ever been since we legalized mm. it. It's bigger than it's ever been. So for you to look me in the eye and say, yeah, the cartels took their ball and went home, that's a bunch of BS. Of course they did not. So this is where I have a problem with them is that really their goal isn't just harm reduction their goal is full drug legalization and then you have to start asking why and that's where it gets kind of murky like why the pharmaceutical companies are standing by ready to, to supply all these drugs why are they actually advocating for that if there's really no evidence that it's gonna gonna make a, a whole lot of difference i've i well i've heard an argument for this um it's about knowing the dosage because of how small of a dose you need now to overdose that's what i've heard from my friends who believe in i have friends that think the government should give out heroin um, and it should just be free and legal. And I think their belief is it would reduce overdoses because you would know exactly what you're getting. You could dose it properly. Do your friends have kids? Uh, I only have one friend who believes in right. legalizing heroin, well, but, um, would, 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 and, she, would and that okay person with, does have kids. Yeah. Would they be okay with their kid walking into a heroin dispensary? You know, I think it's dope? hard when my when you have toddlers to really know. I, I often think about um, I, the the what would you do with your own children right. question is something I think about a lot, and I've written about this. Like, you you look at an average parent in San Francisco, and if their eighteen or seventeen year old is addicted, they're not going to hand their kids cash, needles, foil, and hotel room. Yet that is what San Francisco government is doing. Correct. And also, you I can understand why each of these things was each of these. Um, it's easy to say, oh, cash hotel, you know, hotel rooms and foil, and it and of course this is a mess. But individually, you can understand why each of these things was advocated for. You know, the hotel rooms, you know, get people off the streets, the needles to avoid infectious disease, and. Um, Cash is part of welfare. It's like these, it's not like all one big package, but together it does create quite a situation here. Um, it, it's the most ludicrous situation that I've seen created in ever in San Francisco. The whole shelter in place hotel thing was an unmitigated disaster. I don't care what they say. 90 people died inside those hotels. That's inexcusable. And they didn't die of COVID folks. They didn't, none of them, zero of them died of COVID. Actually, they all died of drug overdose. 
Right. That's and I think at the time, I think at the time it was because they were closing the shelters, right, to protect the workers. That that's only a small small percentage of the people that went into SIP hotels, though. They moved they moved twenty two hundred people into the host those hotels. They moved them off the street. And what's funny is that while they were in the hotels, I would walk around the tenderloin all the time, and I didn't really see any difference on the street. So you know what well, that means? Different on Lombard Street. Oh well, yeah, but I meant as far as like the volume of people on the street in the tenderloin actually did not decrease because more right. people came to the tenderloin. Once they heard they can get a free hotel room and they can score all the dope they want. Let's be real. That's exactly what happened. And, you know, the city has to own that and they won't. They don't even want to talk about it at this point because it's just the city's getting beat up a lot right now. And I feel bad that I might be contributing to that some, but it needs to because what they're doing right now is, is they're they're creating tremendous harm in the community because we're putting our entire focus on the individual with this harm reduction stuff instead of taking a step back and looking at community harm reduction, what would reduce harms to the community in the tenderloin? How about removing the organized drug dealing ring that's operating in plain sight for starters? What would reduce harms to the community in Soma? How about removing the organized drug dealers operating in plain sight there? What would help in the mission? Same thing. Plus all the illegal vendors that are also working for the cartels. Right. You have right. to understand, we've surrendered at least three neighborhoods in San Francisco to cartel-fueled operations, and we, our police department, is down over 500 cops and is absolutely overwhelmed and unable to answer that call to the degree that we need it to be answered. Right. Well, I do think some things are changing with our change of DA, and that might be worth touching on, that um, until, what was it, June we had a very radical left DA, Tessa Budin, who did not believe in prosecuting drug dealers um, and was pretty open about that. He's on video saying a lot of the drug dealers are trafficked themselves. If they get caught and they inform on their superiors, their families back home can be killed. <laughs> um I mean, this has become so political. And, and uh, I mean, just to get back to this, the harm reduction, I mean, it is worth noting there are things happening right now in San Francisco government to try to address this, but it doesn't feel like a very coordinated strategy. For on the drug addiction side, uh, the big pushes from our, I believe, our mayor and state senators and Congress, you know, um, the big pushes are on safe injection sites. And then um, what, what is the other big push for the- Wellness hubs. Well, right. oh, yep, wellness hubs. Wellness hubs, right? Those are the big pushes. Uh, there's not a big push for drug treatment for residential drug treatment. Right. They're only planning to add 120 beds over the next three years. And can we talk about those safe injection sites for a minute and what's happening in San yeah. Francisco? Let's talk about them. So, so what's weird about that is that the governor, the governor vetoed SB 57. He vetoed safe consumption sites. So I don't even know why the city's even talking about it. The city attorney uh, helped adjust some policy with the city and county that said that we'll allow these sites if the nonprofits that run them can secure private funding and if it doesn't right. create any type of impropriety for the city. And so the question I and would they pose, don't want people being arrested. They don't want nonprofit workers going to jail for this. Got it. So, but here's the thing. It's still against federal law. The 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act basically bans any building where they used illicit drugs inside. 
And that issue has not yet been resolved by the Department of Justice. And I know they're working on that with the safe house issue in Philadelphia. And so why don't we just wait for the Department of Justice to make a decision on the legality of these sites so then that we can proceed without making backdoor deals that are totally inappropriate to, to allow these sites to happen? When really what this is, is just this is an activist push from the activist folks that are associated with the Department of Public Health. And I have a lot of respect for DPH, but there are some folks in there that are really like act radical, right? That are pushing this hard and have pushing been pushing it for years that uh, they want to open these sites come hell or high water. And the way that they're going to go about it is just really, it's shady. I'm sorry, it's shady. They're going to get, you know, this, the Department of Public Health is going to give a nonprofit $15 million to open one site on 6th Street in San Francisco. Uh, but that $15 million is for the wellness hub portion, not the safe injection site portion. So because it would be illegal for any of that $15 million to be used in the safe injection site portion of that same building. Well, how do we know that that money is not going to bleed over into the safe injection site portion of the building? What happens if somebody's overdosing in the safe injection site and somebody who's being paid from those 15 million tax dollars that works in another part of the building runs over to reverse that overdose? That's great. They've reversed the overdose, but they're also using your tax dollars to operate inside the safe injection site, thereby violating federal law. These are the questions that I have that nobody even knows to ask that need to be asked. And the city attorney, with all due respect to, to Mr. Chu, he needs to answer those questions to, I think, the public satisfaction. And that's why I think we need to have more public hearings that aren't so biased as they've been having. They've had a couple of different round tables and hearings about safe injection sites and the people that they have sitting on the panel. The most moderate one of them all is Supervisor Dorsey and everybody else is like, one of the radical activist folks that supports safe consumption sites. They've never asked me to go sit on one of those panels, right? Um, or you or Michael mm -hmm. Schellenberger or anybody, they haven't asked any of them to do that. So I, it's just, you know, it, again, it's bias. Uh, they want to run these sites like activist operations and not healthcare operations. There are no nurses or doctors at these sites. I think you'd mentioned that earlier. There's no medical professionals there. It's just a bunch of activists that are trained in reverse, reversing overdoses. Well, I'm trained in reversing overdoses. I'm not a doctor or a nurse. It takes 10 minutes to learn how to use Narcan. So I really don't think, or how to use an oxygen tank. I, I just, you know, what these sites are, what they, tantam, what they are tantamount to, to me, are palliative care sites. It's for people that are in late stage addiction that have no desire to quit. Uh, and they're, they're given a safe place to use. And as an intravenous drug user that used to use on the street, I get that. And I'm not opposed to that necessarily if it was part of a larger continuum of care where we could actually pick up the phone like they can in New York and call the detox van to have to pick somebody up. There is no detox van in San Francisco. There's nowhere for them to go. It takes days or weeks to access drug treatment here. So what are we really doing? Palliative care. Can you define what that means for people who don't know what the word means? Yeah. Palliative care is for people that are terminally ill. It's care for people. It's almost like hospice, right? 
Mm. Except they're not sort quite hospice. They're going to die anyway. That's right. Less in the pain, right? That's right. So there is this view among many in San Francisco. I think this is a good segue into what I wanted to talk to you about, which is when is it morally right to take someone against their will and put them in rehab? And this is something, I think this is what what the big debate is. Um, I think there are a lot of people in, I've heard many, how do I say this? There are many people in San Francisco who believe the people in our streets are sort of hopeless causes, right? Just sort of, mm-hmm. I, I, I refer to it as a Marie Antoinette style answer. It's like, oh, okay, there are all these people here. We'll just let let them do meth, right? Let, let them do drugs. Um, and I think that there's this belief like these people are really deep in their addictions. They're gone. They're not reentering society. They're hopeless. There's really not much we can do. So just sort of let them do what they want. And I don't know. I mean, you mentioned the victim mentality. I'd say that's sort of the extreme victim mentality. There's an even darker version of this, which I have heard people that I would consider highly ethical, morally righteous people say things when they talk about addicts or overdoses like, well, one less person for the city to take care of. Yep. I hear that too. And when you look at our city's approach, you know, I, I would just remember the other things that are being argued for from a policy perspective. They're trying to require that bars have Narcan. Um, that's one bill I think that's in the process. There's another one that create fentanyl-free zones around schools and rehab centers. And then the majority of the discussion is around these safe injection sites. So when you look at the, po- the, the policies that our politicians are advocating for, there's nothing about stopping use. It's just about containing use or reviving people from death when they use. Right. So what I've been wondering recently is why is it so unpopular to mandate treatment? And like that just doesn't even seem to enter the conversation in San Francisco. And I'm curious if it enters the com- – I mean it definitely enters the conversation in other places. They mandate treatment in Portugal, mm-hmm. right? At a certain point, you get caught a couple times. They put, You are required to go to treatment. I don't know what it's like in other – you probably just go to jail in um, other states. I mean can you talk about why are San Francisco like, – why is this city so allergic to the idea of sending people to rehab? And especially when you think about the fact, like this question of what would you do if you were a parent? I mean, I can't even imagine any parent with means whose kid is struggling is going to advocate for rehab, right? I mean, so why is our city so against mandatory rehab? Because our city has let the people that make drug policy in the city twist this under the guise of social justice. And I'm, I'm fine with social justice. Think of it like it's a body autonomy thing. That they don't want to violate your civil liberties. They think intervening is violating your civil liberties, even though you're smoking fentanyl every two hours and you've overdosed sixteen times already in the last three months, but you're still out there on the street. Any intervention beyond overdose reversal would be violating your civil liberties. And for whatever reason, because of the radical far left politics here in San Francisco, the city has bought into that. And the city is kind of abdicated, at least until recently, they mostly abdicated that responsibility to address that to the Department of Public Health, which has kind of swung further and further and further and further to the left on these issues over the years. And then you kind of see the results and how they're playing out. So look, I know a guy on the street right now. His name is John. He's in a wheelchair. He has uh, abscesses all over his legs. 
his legs are infected uh, on his skin. He's pouring pus is like pouring out of the open wounds on his legs. It's so bad that both that his pants are at times when you see him are soaked from the fluid coming out of the pus in his legs. He's in a wheelchair, and uh, he's so sick that he can barely lift his head up except to maybe smoke his fentanyl. Somebody goes and gets his fentanyl for him, and they give it to him. He smokes it and all that, and he refuses to go to the hospital. He doesn't want help because he's afraid of the system. So by all accounts, the Department of Public Health and the Civil American Civil Liberties Union and all the radical harm reductionists will say, well, that's his choice. He can just stay out there and do that. Um, and when you get within 10 feet of him, the smell from his legs, from the necrosis is overwhelming. Um, do you think that that person should be intervened upon or should he just be left out there to his own devices? That to me is a moral question. And I believe the answer is that we should intervene because I think that that we're, that person is struggling with something so bad that he's willing to torture himself and suffer in such despair that I think we as a community have an obligation to step in and say, no, we're going to go and try to give you some help. But if you do, if you do that, then all here come all the activists, all the radical activists. They, they literally will come at you and run up to you and bully you and and cuss at you and call you names and all this stuff right to your face. And they will tell you, no, you can't violate his civil, civil liberties. Well, I disagree. I think in that case, he should be conserved. And that's where we need to start drawing the line. Uh, otherwise, he's going to die. And, you know, at that point, he just becomes a number or a statistic. And the harm reduction people all run to the next person. The radical folks all run to the next person to defend and the next person to defend and the next person to defend. And eventually that person dies too. And that person dies and that person dies. How many more have to die? We've lost way over 2000 people of drug overdose out here on the street in the last three years. We lost over 70 people last month. I lost two people that I knew. One guy I was in rehab with. He was pulled out of an SRO last week. He overdosed and died. How many more have to die before we say enough? And we're going to start looking at some real ways to intervene. There is a subset of people on the street that require intervention. And people like him that I just described are absolutely one of those people that require intervention. At the same time, people like me that weren't quite as sick as him also required intervention. Because if I had not been intervened upon, I would be dead or I'd still be out there on the street right now. But I, I promise you, I wouldn't be here talking to you. And so this whole notion of just let people die, that's kind of a right-wing trope, right? But it's also a far left-wing trope too. It's almost like the horseshoe theory. It, it's come to fruition. Right. I was just going to say that. This is one issue where the far right and the far left agree. Yeah. I remember learning about this in college. We actually um, I took this class on leadership and we were learning. We brought in a speaker for, um, from this organization that's about allowing people to use drugs. It's sort of advocating for legalization of drugs. And it's a libertarian organization. The, old, the, the, hardcore, the hardcore libertarians are saying, get the government out of this. If people want to do drugs, that's their choice. You know, skin inwards is an individual choice. I, I, it's fascinating. It's one, of yeah. the, it's one of the few topics where the left and the right agree. Right. And I think Dr. Keith Humphreys kind of explained that recently in, a, in an op-ed that he wrote in the Chronicle where he talked about how the, our progressive policies have a libertarian streak here in San Francisco. 
uh, running through it. And I agree. It is kind of a libertarian approach to where, you know, if you want to use drugs, your choice. And uh, all the other stuff that happens as a side effect of that, oh, well. And that's where, you know, people become, they can't see the forest through the trees anymore. They're so focused on the individual that they can't see the harm that he's also causing the community. You know, the Tenderloin has 3,000 kids that live in the neighborhood, more than any other neighborhood in San Francisco. The kids have to be escorted to school and back from school every day. And they have to walk through a gauntlet every single day of drug dealers and drug and drug users. That's not right. fair. And th- that's a community of color. Where's the equity in that? And a lot well, of elderly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people in recovery. And poverty. Yeah, it's, poverty. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the te- for those who aren't familiar, the Tenderloin is filled with these hotels that were used back when San Francisco was a um, port town. And they were building ships here and rope factories and just the city was exploding post um, gold rush. When all of a sudden there are all these people here, hadn't found gold, needed jobs, the city boomed. And so they built all these hotels to house the workers. And those hotels, I believe, are protected um, as national historical sites, right? I think we have like 530 of them or so. Um, And these are, you know, they might have... I don't know, 50, 100 rooms. A lot of them don't have bathrooms, but they might have a sink inside them. They're eight by, what, eight by eight 10, by 10 or something? Yeah, they're eight yeah, by 10, And I, I actually walked into one the other day and I asked um, if they were offering rooms to people from the public. I was like, oh, can people get a room here? Like, no, 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 you have to go through the city. The city contracts with many of the hotels. And I think the city has determined they're going to spend um, have a certain number of beds available to people per night and they have people in long-term contracts from what i understand there are people who've been living subsidizing these hotels for decades but i also know there's a bunch that you can just rent by the um actually you know it's funny the sro hotels are where my interest in san francisco politics began it started with reading yelp reviews and TripAdvisor reviews of SROs because Europeans would come here and say, oh, a hotel room right near Union Square for $70 or you know, $80. <laughs> and then they'd leave these reviews like, holy moly, there's prostitutes in the hallway and there's bed bugs and people are screaming and yeah. there's drugs everywhere. Um, and people were so surprised. These hot- from, but what I've heard is these hotels, I think these hotels are very much like the center of the whole thing. Um, there's, it's a, it creates this, that's where most of the drug dealing is, right? In the Tenderloin. Right. You have an enormous populate entrenched population of people living in the hotels or right. cycling in and out. I think when, from what I understand, when people get their checks at the beginning of the month, is it the beginning of the month that you yep, get? The um, end of the month distance? or beginning of the month. Yep. Right. And then the hotels are packed. Everyone, you know, is like booking a room, throwing parties. Right. That's some of those I mean, hotels. And, and then some of those SROs were actually bought by the city in the nineties and converted to permanent supportive housing. So you have a mishmash of both things going on. Right. Right. Uh, and then you had the shelter in place hotels going on with that over COVID too, that just made the problem worse. So yes, you're right. That is the epicenter of everything. Uh, a lot of people. And none of them are sober, right? None of them are have, I mean, there's no, no. sober living facilities in the city from what you, I understand. There's you, no, like you can't get any kind of special treatment if you're sober and down and out of luck. Like there's no, they view that as discriminatory. Yeah, that's right. That, that, uh, so, that's high barrier. They, they, everything has to be low barrier. And that's part of the housing first model. And that's actually state law. Now it was written into the welfare and institutions code in 2016, uh, where any kind of supportive housing that had, that was built needs a special exclusion to be anything other than the housing first model. And that special exclusion is harder to get. Let's put it that way. It's not impossible, but it's harder to get. And you certainly won't get any, uh, 
state or federal funding for it because the state and the federal government uses the housing first model, which on paper works fine. But in implementation, in the way that you just described it, with SRO hotels, with no private kitchen in an 80 square foot room in an old hotel that was built pre-World War II that's full of bed bugs is, it, with 12 drug dealers hanging out in front is not conducive to stability of any kind or mm. recovery. And you see the, the proof is in the pudding with the amount of bodies that they're pulling out of these SROs right now from overdose. That to me is proof in the pudding, not just the fact that one of my friends who's a case manager in one of these hotels described his hotel as anarchy. Not just because of that, but because of the dead bodies that they're pulling out of these hotels. The city is actually, in many ways, negligent, in my opinion, in the way that they have addressed this. Um, they have I, I, a story just came out today in the Chronicle about how the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing uh, has wasn't able to spend $100 million of the money they had budgeted towards them last year because they didn't have staff, supposedly, to do it. And that we have... Um, 800 empty rooms sitting in San Francisco waiting to be filled that they can't fill at this time. Like what's up with that? And then they have rooms prioritized higher for other people and certain other people. I mean, we, we could talk a long time about the process to get into permanent supportive housing in San Francisco. And, you know, they, they basically have you fill out an application and then you go through an alg. they run you through an algorithm to see how sick you are. And if you're sick enough and homeless enough, you can get on the list for housing. But if you were a guy like me, that was just out there shooting dope, you know, and I didn't have, you know, necrosis and schizophrenia. I didn't qualify. I couldn't get on the list for that. Or if I did, it would be a three-year wait minimum. And my waiting room is the street because there's no shelters. There's not enough shelters. We have enough shelter for right. 40% of the people out there on the street. It's just the, the way that no other city have I seen in the United States there's no other city that I've seen in the United States where we are implementing the housing first model as poorly with as poor of outcomes as we are in San Francisco. And that must change. Right. It's sort of a perfect example of perfect being the enemy of good. It's like we didn't we don't build shelters. We have I think we only have 2000 shelter beds and um, New York City has something like 65,000. Meanwhile, we have an enormous amount of um, subsidized housing, the SROs supportive housing, um, but obviously not enough. Clearly not enough. Uh, we, like I said, so, expensive. right. And so any given night you have 7,000 people sleeping on the street in San Francisco, according to the point time report. And it's more, it's actually more, if you count all the RVs that are parked all over the city out by Lake Merced and by Stonestown Galleria and out by Candlestick Park and in the Bayview Hunters Point area, there's about 20,000 homeless people in San Francisco right now at any right. given time. Um, so right. problems a lot bigger than what they're telling you that it is and what the media tells you it is. The Chronicle did come through with a story earlier this year saying that about 20,000 people are cycling through homelessness. Uh, I do appreciate Heather Knight because she seems like one of the few people over there that really stands up and kind of just calls it as she sees it. And I think that we need some of that still because the media has become so opinionated and biased about these issues one way or the other that, uh, who knows what's true anymore, which is why when I get reached out to by national media, I pretty much talk to anybody that'll talk to me. I've talked right. to the New York Times, which is left-leaning, but I've also talked to Fox News, which is right-leaning. 
because everybody has a stake in this and we and we and I'm just going to keep telling them the truth no matter who it is that I talk to. Yeah, I mean, are there many when you think of the act like you call them the activists, um how many of those people were in a situation like yours, serious addiction and then recovered? There's some, some of them are. Uh and you know, I there's a diversion between us. I have a lot of respect for the people that are in recovery that are pushing radical harm reduction. I, I respect the fact that you found a pathway out. I think that that's great. Um, but the difference is, is that they will turn around and say the path that I went is actually wrong and it's rare and we shouldn't follow it. Right. But I'm not sitting here saying the path that you went is wrong and you shouldn't follow it. I'm just saying, hey, why can't we have both? Like I said earlier, there's aspects of harm reduction that I agree with. There's some that I don't. But at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We want to save lives and we want people to get better and uh, and not die and all that stuff or, and find recovery. But at least I thought it was fine recovery. But I've kind of come to find out some of these folks that are enjoying recovery themselves. Years and years of abstinence-based sobriety that got clean through 12-step like I got clean now advocate and and I'll use this quote because someone high up in the harm reduction treatment world in San Francisco told me this to my face quote unquote there are 17 million people struggling with addiction in the United States none of them want to get clean so we should just support them but this person has been clean and sober for decades telling me that enjoying their life as making big money in a big job in San Francisco, right? Uh, enjoying 30 years of sobriety or whatever it is, 20 years of sobriety that they're enjoying. But they're basically saying that, you know what? We can't do it for these. It's too hard now for these people. So we should just support them. It's basically what they're saying. And I have a huge problem with that. Yeah. You know, I, I talked to someone who's very um, involved in the harm reduction world about this. And so I, I think I have a somewhat understanding of where they're coming from on a statement like that. I think the belief is you can't force recovery onto someone. They have to want it. And so you often hear people talk about things like they have to reach rock bottom. And if they haven't reached rock bottom, then they're not going to be motivated. Now, unfortunately, these days, rock bottom is often an overdose that, you know, may or may not be reversed. But I have heard, you know, they, they'll use statistics like if you force people into rehab, 80%, you know, drop out and of the people who make it, you know, what a percent relapse and it's so expensive. I mean, and it is expensive, right? It's something like 50 or, you know, the nice, the fancy places are 50 or 80K for 90 days. I don't know what the Salvation Army's costs are or what the city pays yeah. for rehab, but it does, there are these two questions in my mind around willpower slash wanting and does it matter? And then the cost, like, um, and I, I think I'm kind of, let me see if I can piece those together. You said in our last interview, you say, you said something like, I guess you could argue that I was a victim of the exploitation you were talking about dealing. And you said, although I was doing it willingly, but I was doing it willingly because of my addiction. That's right. And so I think where there's a debate here is on this like will, the will and desire and the willpower do if an if someone is addicted actually this i have a story of this happened today i went to Folsom and 7th take my dog and there's a woman there who has taken over the entire sidewalk with all kinds of belongings empty food containers bags of trash like clothing all kinds of weird stuff um that would not be even appropriate for saying aloud 
And um, she was really out of it. And I went up to her. I, this is what I do now always. I go up to people and I say, hi, are you okay? Like, do you need an ambulance? And I've called a bunch of ambulances recently. If people aren't responsive, I call an ambulance. At first, she wasn't responsive. Then she did respond. Um, and she said, someone stole my purse and I need money to buy water. And she was just sort of rambling. And I was like, okay, I'm calling an ambulance. So um, I did. I came back later in the afternoon. She was still there. And I was surprised. I thought the ambulance would have picked her up. And so I called back and I said, hi, you know, I'm calling just to check. Did the ambulance ever go? Or, or, um, and I also had said, it looks like the street crisis team should go out there as well. And the woman said, yeah, we sent out street crisis team. She refused all treatment. And so there's really nothing we can do. I think this is what the debate comes down to, right? It's like, if you're going, like, first of all, and I think it's hard. I understand from the perspective of the politicians when you have a population that's saying, let people have body autonomy, you know, don't arrest people. You can't force people in. Um, I think I think that uh, San Franciscans especially view mandatory rehab as being akin to jail, right? If you're forced. And um, it, that's yeah, they, they a lot of them do think that way. And I don't and then agree. You, and then you hear these stories and then it's like this woman's probably going to die. She was lying in the sun. She right. had no water. She's like parched. I'm like, I'm wondering what's, and then you see these horrific stories. There was a woman last week where um, her legs were really infected and they were trying to convince her to go to the hospital. She didn't yep. want to go. She looks to be about my age, you know, mid thirties. She's lost her feet now. Yep. And so then, you know, you talk about the impact this has on the community. How are we, if we say, oh, you can't penalize this person for committing a crime because they are addicted and they don't have control over their mind and they're, and you know, they don't have control. Like they have to steal or they have to rob to get money for their addiction. Like you can't hold them responsible for that. If you can't hold them responsible for their breaking laws, then how can you hold the person responsible for their own opinion when they say, I don't need to go to the hospital? Yeah. So th- that whole not holding them responsible is literally the antithesis of recovery. So in recovery, we we learn that you have to own the things you did in your addiction. Would you have done them had you not been a drug addict? No, probably not. But you did nonetheless. And yes, you were sick with addiction, but you have to own them. And to say that that person is not responsible for that is absolute absolute opposite of recovery. And to me, that's anarchy. That's nihilism to just allow that to happen. And, you know, going back to what you said about the person talking about mandated treatment, you know, there's, first of all, the success rates for people in drug treatment, whether they're mandated or it's voluntary, are the same. It's 20%. 20% across the board. Harm reduction, voluntary, involuntary, it's 20%. Everybody knows that. So for them to only, again, for them to only share that mandated treatment only has a 20% success rate, without also saying, well, also voluntary treatment has a 20% success rate is irresponsible for them to do that. So I'm putting that out there now and I'm calling bullshit on that. Sorry. Uh, And then the, the, the other, the other issue is that, look, there was a study that came out in 2012 that said that the, that the success rates of someone completing an inpatient residential treatment program that were mandated through drug court, the completion rates are the same as somebody that, that went to voluntary treatment. There's data there to back up that mandated treatment can work. And it's, is it really mandated treatment or is it a choice? 
So the way I frame it is that I was given a choice. I was sitting in jail. I could have just kept sitting in jail and eventually get released back out into the street because by that time my wife had a restraining order on me. I couldn't go home. I couldn't even talk to her and my kids or go to rehab. That was my choice. So when the drug court, when people say we're mandating you to treatment, no, no, no. The person's sitting in jail, not because he was just sitting there shooting dope on the street in San Francisco. Nobody gets arrested for that in San Francisco. And we're talking about San Francisco. I know in other states it's different. But in San Francisco, if you're sticking a needle in your neck and a police officer walks, look, I was at the Tenderloin police station. And across the street, there was a row of people sitting there against the building, all smoking fentanyl with cops walking by doing the shift change. Nobody did anything, right? So so there's no war on drugs in San Francisco. That's all a bunch of BS. That ended a long, long time ago with like Frank Jordan when he was mayor, okay? There hasn't been a war on drugs in San Francisco in a really, really, really long time. Uh, so this whole idea of, you know, well, they've got to want it. Yeah, it's true. But you know what? Sometimes if people are given a push like I was and I went into rehab, uh, I was with a lot of people in rehab that were also coming out of jail as a choice to go to rehab or sit in jail. And while they were in the program, they found recovery along the way. So does it work for everybody? No. But why are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we need every single resource available to us right now, including drug court, including mandated treatment? Because we just don't have enough beds. And right now there's a ton of beds sitting empty in San Francisco. And I don't mean just the Department of Public Health sanctioned beds. I mean the Father Alfred Center at St. Anthony's. I mean the Salvation Army ARC. I mean Harbor Light. There are open beds, right? Yeah. Um, I checked today. There are, yes. There's open beds. There are open beds. We have a wait list for housing and a wait list for shelter, but we have a lot of open beds in treatment. Right. And why would you want, and so nobody, nobody's pushing you to get clean and sober, right? Nobody's pushing you into recovery here in San Francisco. Uh, and at the same time, we've made fentanyl $5 on the street for you to buy, and you can buy it 24-7 on 20 different street corners in the city. And, and the police don't bother you because you can sit in front of the federal building across the street from the methadone clinic and shoot dope all day, and nobody's going to mess with you. Why I would you? Yeah. Why would Dozen you get clean? The federal building, right? Doing why, why would you get clean in that environment, Michelle? Why? <laughs> so, all right. So clearly, you're you. I mean, it, yeah. I keep wondering: is it just because of the cost? Is it just too expensive to get people into treatment over and over again? Like, you know, you have these people who've been on heroin and then fentanyl. They're in their fifties or sixties. They have been, they're like been living in the streets for a long time. Yep. They might have severe mental illness. Like, I think I, I wonder at what point, is there a point at which you're like, this is too expensive? Well, I know this is how you have to ask, right? If it costs right. 600 grand to get that person clean, well, so good good question. So a friend of mine has her son is on the street. And he she took him off the street and took him to a detox in Marin County. And to just go into the detox for the 30-day detox it was $12,000. So that was private pay, exclusive rehab, all that. He he bailed after about a week. He couldn't hang and he left. And so they gave her back a prorated amount of her money or something like that. So private rehab is extremely expensive. The Salvation Army, where I went to, it didn't cost me a dollar. 
it was actually free for me to go. Uh, mm -hmm. They get their money through donations. They're privately funded. People donate their old clothes to the Salvation Army and they turn around and sell them in their thrift stores. And that's how they fund the program that I went to. And it didn't cost a dime for me to go for six and months. And philanthropy, right? They have yeah, and philanthropy. Donors. Big donors. Yeah. Big donors, right? Big board. And I think that right. they're building a, something like a 2,000-bed facility right now in San Francisco, uh, which, the, if I'm correct, San Francisco doesn't particularly condone Salvation Army because it's a faith-based organization, right? They don't really work together. Is that that's correct? all changed that's all changed so yeah they they are Change. it's changing because san francisco is desperate for solutions the salvation army is coming with a good solution called the way out initiative which is a a plan to add up to a thousand beds in transitional like recovery based transitional housing and therapeutic communities and they would use the harbor light rehab as a pipeline and other other uh community based organizations that want to that want to actually get involved in this as a pipeline to fill these beds up where it gives people kind of like, this is the model that I like, where it's a recovery oriented system of care, where you're actually giving people stability, first, first drug treatment, then stable housing as a promise after completing drug treatment for up to two years and workforce development and all the recovery services, the wraparound services in recovery that you need. Um, and then they'll help you with job placement and all that and help you look for permanent supportive housing after that. Because look, right now, the wait list for housing is almost three years anyway. So instead of the waiting room being the street, why not get clean and sober, live in transitional housing, learn a job skill, and then you can come out and get a job and be self-sufficient. I mean, that makes so much sense that it hurts. And fortunately, fortunately, San Francisco's leadership is coming around to that idea and they're recognizing the fact that they need to expand the solution space and, and have some other options available other than just permanent supportive housing. And as far as treatment costing money, Michelle, the only thing I will say to you is that the Department of Public Health's budget for, for their Department of Behavioral Health, which manages the substance use and mental health treatment beds, has a budget of $596 million every single year. So they've got the money, 596 million bucks a year. They have the money to fund treatment beds, but they do not because they do not believe that that is the primary goal anymore. That their, their primary goal now is to just support drug users. Their primary goal is no longer recovery. And I'm trying to change their mind and bring recovery back to the forefront because to me, that is the solution to, to this crisis. Because yes, it's a housing crisis. It is. But to deny that there's also an addiction crisis amongst the homeless is irresponsible. Of course there is. And an untreated mental illness health crisis amongst the homeless. Of course there is. UCLA did a study in 2019 that said that somewhere between 50 and 78% of the people on the street have comorbidities that include mental illness and addiction. Uh, yet you still have other organizations saying, only 14% of the people on the street struggle with mental illness and only 24% of the people struggle with addiction. That's just, they're just, for lack of a better term, they're lying. They're lying to support their narrative um, so that they can continue to win the narrative. And then that leads to their model being implemented and the funding for the model going to that instead of going to solutions like what Salvation Army is doing. Uh, and that's, that needs to all change because Again, we've been doing this for, a, we've been going around in circles for like a decade with this. I've done a lot of research the last three years. It's been a decade that we've been doing this. Has it gotten better or has it gotten worse? Is it 
just because there's not enough housing, that's part of it. Yes, but there's something else going on where you've got a bunch of people that are quitting on society and they're ending up homeless on the street and they're all turning to drugs. And so you have to start asking what those problems are and how do we address them? And then you also have to recognize the addiction crisis and, and the, again, the data, the proof is in the overdose deaths. That is the ultimate statistic. You cannot deny that there is an overdose crisis. Right. And we have the highest death rate of overdose per 100,000 people in the nation, followed by Philadelphia, which has yep. similar policies. Yeah, of any county in the nation, we're, we're the number highest. one. Yep, yeah. that's right. Which, as a native San Franciscan, to think that we're number one as the, you know, overdose death, sent, I mean, the number one for overdose deaths is well, um, sickening. You, you... <laughs> so, all right. So if you if you were in charge what would you do? I would call in the National Guard immediately and the U.S. Marshals and the DEA. And I would create, uh, I would set up FEMA-like tents in Civic Center where we used to have that big safe sleeping site and maybe Mm -hmm. one in Soma and one in the Mission uh, that have triage, first aid, cots, food, showers, and then bring in a bunch of service providers from the city to start providing Mm -hmm. referrals to services. Right. That's number one. Then I would also have the National Guard be out there as a presence along with the DEA to, to break up the drug cartel that's operating here in San Francisco. I mean, you got to understand, folks, there's five to seven hundred people out there selling drugs on any given day, rotating in shifts out here in San Francisco. They're also helping fuel the whole stolen goods crisis too. all the fences and everything they need to be dealt with. If we're going to clean the city up, are we going to get rid of all of them? No. But you can't have 500 of them out there on the street either because that's harming the community a great deal. And they are working as a regional magnet with people driving as far down from as from as far away as Santa Rosa to come right. here and buy their drugs on the street. It needs to change. Uh, and I would have them do a sustained operation for like six months until we can get things under control. While we're doing that, we ask again help from the federal government to build several shelters in San Francisco throughout the city, sprinkled around the city. I know some neighborhoods don't want homeless shelters in their community. Well, guess what? Everybody has, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a big poop sandwich and everyone's going to have to take a bite. Okay. Oh my gosh. That's how bad the problem is. I'm sorry. The city's too small to have it all concentrated in the tenderloin and Bayview Hunters Point. Mm-hmm. You've got to spread it out. Uh, you, you do those, those really just those three basic things. And like 75% of this problem goes away. You remove the drug dealers from the street and all the stuff that comes with that. It's like 75, 80% of the problem goes away. And, and I promise you, we don't have enough cops to do it. And there's policing issues. There's racial profiling issues that come with that. We have judges that, that are having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that when the DA, who's doing a great job, by the way, we actually have a real DA now, not a radical yeah. like Chesa, yeah. right? Who's bringing way more cases in front of the courts for fentanyl dealing than than Chesa ever did in the whole two and a half years he was in office. Um, uh, he might have been the worst district attorney that San Francisco ever had. I'll just be honest. I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound facetious, but I know he's an intelligent man, but he really hurt San Francisco bad 
you know, and it's going to take us a while to recover from the damage that he and his crew came in and did. And we're kind of starting to see it again in Alameda County. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a conservative. I'm actually a moderate liberal. And I, but mm-hmm. I believe that criminal justice plays a role in all of this. And so law enforcement must play a subsequent role as well. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but Michelle, those are some of the things that I would do. Um, you know, the feds have to get involved at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, look, these dealers, it's not the 1990s, guys. It's not the crack era where you had people that were living from the grew up in the community, from the community, were selling drugs on the street to support themselves so they could eat. Okay. Now what you have is you have people being brought here willfully to sell drugs by the cartel from another country to sell drugs on our street that are killing 640 people a year. It's totally different. 640 just here, 100,000 nationally. So it's totally, it's a different drug market. It's a different drug dealer that we're dealing with. And so we need to change our approach. And this whole war on drugs narrative that failed, yeah, it failed because we failed the African-American community in the 1980s and 1990s. We did. And we got to own that, right? That's a big part of the reason why I'm still a Democrat. We got to own that. Um, But uh, what we're talking about on the street now with the drug dealers out there, different. It's a totally different ballgame. Fentanyl changed everything. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. What about for everyday citizens who want to help? I get asked this all the time. People DM me on Twitter and they say, you know, I live here. I see this. I want to get involved. I want to help. How can I help? If people feel passionately about what you're saying, if they agree with you, and it resonates. How how can people help? <laughs> well, there's lots of ways. I could do a plug for my nonprofit. I mean, you mm-hmm. guys can help. You can give money to the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Their website is www.gooddrugpolicy.org. Uh, and tell them it's for me. I have my own nonprofit that I'll be launching soon called the Pacific Alliance for Prevention and Recovery. Uh, We're going to be focused Mm -hmm. on changing drug policy and advocating for better drug policy in San Francisco, which is really at the root of a lot of this that nobody Mm -hmm. talks about. And I'll include a link to that um, in the show notes. Great. Uh, But but really also- organization. Yeah, give give money to orgs. Salvation Army is a great org to give money to. Uh, Positive Directions Equals Change is a great little organization in the city that is a Black-led organization that believes 100% in recovery. We should definitely, if you have money, give them money too. Uh, because they're actually running the TRP Academy, which is currently the only abstinence-based therapeutic teaching community in San Francisco. And it's only for justice-involved adults, but it's Black-led, Black-run, and they're doing a fantastic job with a tremendous success rate, way higher than 20%. Okay? It's like more mm-hmm. like 60%, their completion wow. rate. So it's like doing three times as, as well. Um, and then you need to vote accordingly. Okay, you need to be able to sniff out who's on the hard, hard left in San Francisco and who's coming in left of center or center, because you're never going to have anyone from the right, you know. Um, and and I want to talk about that too about 
my experience experiences mm-hmm. um, meeting political leaders and famous people on the left and right and what it is the Republicans and Democrats are focusing on now because it's it, it'll, it's kind of weird. But, um, you know, so you need to vote accordingly and then you need to email and call your member of your board of supervisors and put pressure on them. Um, they, they read their emails. If you're on Twitter, you tweet them, you tag them in tweets, you tell them that this is unacceptable, that you're their constituent. And you are not okay with this. I promise you that Supervisor Ronan in District 9 is so tired that she's actually looking for solutions now that, that are a departure from what she was thinking two years ago because it's gotten bad and she's running out of ideas. I think she said that in a meeting last week, that she's running out of ideas. So it, the city is ripe for change to take a, a just a couple of ticks back towards the middle from the far left where we where we've been sitting the last couple of years where we've been basically run by democratic socialists in San yeah. Francisco that that time is over because they ran the city into a ditch I'm sorry to say actually sorry not sorry they ran the city into a ditch and we have to now dig it out okay on that note let's wrap with a couple last questions. Um, <laughs> let's, let's have an uplifting note. If people want to learn more about, okay, so they can give, so you said give money, vote. And what about if you see someone on the street, what do you think is the morally right thing to do when you are walking into work and you see someone passed out on the sidewalk? You know, that's a great question. So, um, you know, if you're feeling brave, you go up to them and ask them, Hey, are you okay? And if they move, they're breathing. Okay, they move along and leave them alone. Respect, the, you know, they're sleeping. Okay. Um, if you if you have access to Narcan, start carrying Narcan. Uh, and if you have kids, definitely talk to your kids if they're old enough. If they're teenagers, talk to your kids about drugs. Uh, and I don't mean just say no like the 80s, but talk to them about every single drug that you buy on the street right now that's not from a pharmacy or a doctor Eight out of every 10 drugs that you buy on the street right now has fentanyl in it. So your friends want to go buy some meth and just do a bump tonight at the club, 80% chance there's fentanyl in it. You want to buy a little cocaine and go to the club, 80% chance there's fentanyl in it. So talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your community about the dangers of fentanyl and how it has completely changed the drug market and changed the game. There's a lot of kids now that are dying of what they call fentanyl poisoning, where they're buying drugs off of Snapchat. So pay attention to what your kids are looking at online, on their phones. Make sure they're not buying drugs off the off of Snapchat. Again, 80% chance it has fentanyl in it. And uh, you don't want to face that tragedy. I've met too many parents that have lost their kids that way, who are good kids that weren't struggling with addiction, that came from upper middle class homes. Um that just made a mistake and that's not right. And uh, so that's what I would encourage you to do. So educate yourself and be informed because not enough people know about this crisis. Mm -hmm. Are there any books or resources you recommend? Yeah, there's a great book that's out right now called the least of us uh, tales of meth and fentanyl in America. It's written by Sam Quinones. He wrote a national bestseller about 10 years ago called Dreamland, which was about the opioid, the original opioid crisis in the 90s with the overprescribing Oxycontin. Uh, and then he followed up just last year with this book. Uh, and, you know, he traveled all around the country to see what's going on. And, you know, he talks about this new kind of meth that's out there that uh, is seems to be causing mental illness a lot faster. He talked about the impacts of fentanyl. 
And uh, it's a tough read, but it's a good read because then when, when you put that book down, finally, after you've read it, you'll, you'll have a much greater understanding of what the cartel is doing, uh, what their plan is, their economic plan, and how they're kind of winning right now. And uh, he talks about how Mexico is not helping us with that. And um, talking about what you're seeing in more rural communities, how it really isn't a housing crisis for them. It's a meth crisis for a lot of people in rural communities and how much drugs are really impacting our society today. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic that we're going to get a handle on this as a society? Do you think we're going to turn this around? Man, I, you know, I was in Washington, D.C. two weeks ago, and I met with mostly Democratic leaders, and they were just just starting to kind of acknowledge that fentanyl is a problem, while the Republican leaders are like jumping up and down screaming to, about fentanyl. Um, so this is an issue where the Democrats have kind of, they're late to the game on, I, have to, I hate to say it, but they are. Uh, they're mm. also late to the game on public safety, and they're late to the game on the homeless issue. And if they want to remain in power in 2020, in 2024, uh, they need to address that because if they don't, they're going to hand those over to the GOP on a silver platter. And I went to my first Republican event the other day and, you know, I realized after going to that event that I'm definitely not a Republican. I'm a Democrat. Um, cause they, they, they're really fixated on the culture war and the whole, um, the trans issue stuff, you know, which I'm, I'm a big LGBTQ supporter. So I just kind of stay away from all that. Nice people, uh, lots of respect for them. I met, you know, just like I met Pelosi a couple of weeks ago, I met Alex Stein. I mean, I, I'll talk to anybody, you know, uh, that wants to talk about this crisis because we all have a stake in it is really my point. It's not, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be a Republican or Democrat thing. It's a humanitarian crisis. We need to take the best ideas from the left and the right. This is the one issue where I think we can find some bipartisanship um, because there's none in Washington right now. There's zero bipartisanship in Washington right now, uh, but there should be, especially around the issue of fentanyl because people, the number one cause of death for people aged one to 44 now, it's not suicide. It's not gun violence, despite the horrible stuff that happened today in Nashville. It is overdose. That right. is the number one cause. That's right. our kids, folks. That's our that's our younger generation, Gen Z. They're dying and millennials are dying of overdose at record numbers. We all have a stake in that. So let's all come together and try to make some change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were the Republicans in D.C. saying about fentanyl? What's their plan? Their plan, they, they, want to, they want to make it, a, they, well, they want to do two things. So one, they want to make it declared a weapon of mass destruction. Um, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. It killed 75,000 people last year. Um, if you had any other kind of chemical weapon that killed 75,000 people in a year, you would declare it a weapon of mass destruction. So it's right. kind of hard for me to argue against that, right? They also, you know, they want to go, they, they want to put pressure on Mexico to do something about the cartels understandable also the mistake that they're making is they're conflating it with the immigration issue the the people that are immigrating across the border in my opinion aren't the ones carrying drugs drugs are coming through legal ports of entry but the coyotes that are bringing people up to the border and over the border also work for the same cartels that traffic the drugs so really the root of the problem is the cartels we need to go after them 
And the Democrats don't want any part of that because that would mean the war on drugs uh, again. And they've like <laughs> backed themselves into a corner on that. But they're going to start losing elections if they don't do something about it. And it, it's not just a public health issue in Europe. They don't treat it as just a public health issue. It is also a public safety issue. Right. Where law enforcement and public health work together in tandem, like Amsterdam. It works really well in the Netherlands, where they have this kind of partnership between the two. I would love to see that. That's Michael Schellenberger's vision. That's my vision. There's a lot of us that see it that way. The moms, the mothers against drug addiction and death. We all we see it that way. North America recovers. California Peace Coalition, there's a lot of groups that are bipartisan that see it that way. And mm-hmm. uh, and we hope to have as many politicians start to see it that way as well. Well, it's easy to see why this is extremely complex when you think about all the stuff we've just covered, everything from housing to poverty to race, body autonomy, views on liberty, healthcare system, mental health care, the borders. It's... Um, it's a lot. Extremely multifaceted with a lot of differing opinions about the way to fix it and differing opinions on what the goal is. You know, I think you're, the sense I get is you're most passionate about saving lives. Right. That's what you, that's the sense I get. It's not, when people say, oh, we should have free heroin so we put the cartels out of business. I don't think you're waking up every day and thinking about how do we put the cartels out of business. No. Because it's, they're that's not, gonna... not the goal. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean- yeah, I think, and I and you and I share this value. I think that there's, um, I, I I think we as a society have a moral responsibility to intervene. Um, which and and I t- and I lean pretty liberal in many ways. I I struggle with this because I actually also believe that we should have more um, uh, more legalization of certain drugs like psilocybin ketamine. I think there should be more therapeutic uses of certain drugs. But when it comes to some of these situations where people are, I, I, I believe think we need to become more aggressive with the 5150s and conservatorship. If someone is truly seems to be a danger to themselves, I think that's the time you have a moral imperative as a society to intervene, especially given that some of these people who are here, if they were somewhere else, they would live, right? If they were somewhere else, They'd be taken taken against their will to the hospital. Here, they're not, mm-hmm. and so it creates this situation. For me, I feel very uncomfortable with the fact that people that come to my hometown have a higher chance of dying than people that go somewhere else. Right. That doesn't seem. That doesn't seem like a. There's just something off about that. Agreed, and the Republicans and the right wing will say that's not progressive, um, and I just. I just look at it as that's just not compassionate. We've gotten it. We've let ideology get in the way of logic and of, of compassion of actually doing the right thing. And sometimes the right thing isn't easy. And sometimes it's painful. And, you know, me getting arrested was not easy, but it, and it was painful, but it was definitely a form of compassion because I was mercifully taken off the streets it was like they did me a favor. And I know people say, well, that's just not true. or well, That's just your experience. Well, yeah, but there's a lot of people. I promise you, if you took them off the street right now and put them somewhere secure where they had food, medical attention, and uh, a warm place, a warm bed to sleep in, they would breathe in some medicine 
to help fight the withdrawals from their fentanyl, they would breathe a big sigh of relief. Not everyone, but there's a lot of them that would. And so if you don't want to use jail, that's fine. Come up with a different infrastructure, but we haven't. And so everyone's just left out on the street. And Michelle, you're right. I want to save lives. And San Francisco is this beautiful city, and we're literally rotting from the from the core right now, and we're letting it happen. And um, I promise you, you know, we could talk about downtown revitalization and the empty downtown, and that's a big issue. But this, no one's going to come back. Its city's never going to come back at full strength unless we do something about the homelessness and the drugs that are killing. Because nobody wants to come to a place where you can smell death. You come to this town and 640 people are dying every year. 70 people a month are dying of drug overdose. You can literally smell the death when you walk through the tenderloin. And I know that seems dramatic, but it's, it's the, I don't know. I mean, every time you hear an ambulance downtown now, you know, it's for a drug overdose, right? It's like they run at a hundred percent capacity and 85% of those calls are ODs. You can smell the death. We need to get, we need to shed that, right? And no amount of safe consumption sites or safe injection sites or overdose prevention centers, whatever you want to call it, is going to do that. Otherwise, you know, if you look at Vancouver, which is the number one number one epicenter for all of North America, so they're even worse off than San Francisco. They have twelve safe consumption sites up there in Vancouver, yet they have the same amount of overdose deaths every month as we do in San Francisco. So clearly, it's not the panacea that everyone is purporting it to be. You need a full continuum of care, and the city has the money to do it, and we should do it while we still have the money. Because in a couple of years, we won't have the money with the way things are going. So this is our last chance. We have about two fiscal years to do something major here in this town, to clean it up and invite businesses and tourism back until that. But if we don't do that after those two years, things are going to get even harder. The homelessness and the organized drug leaning that's here is going to get even more entrenched. And then we'll be in a really, really difficult situation. All right. That is a call to action. If I ever heard one, Um, I deeply appreciate your taking the time to talk through these very painful and complex issues. I will share, I'm going to take take notes on the recording and I will share them for people who want to reference back. Um, Also, we'll include links to the books you recommended, the nonprofits, and um, we'll have the comments section open. So if people want to share thoughts on this recording um, or questions, they can put them in the comments and yeah, we're going to keep, we're going to keep fighting for this. And if you, and follow, yeah, I'll put your Twitter. If you're interested in learning more about Tom's views on this, as he becomes increasingly a national voice on this topic, follow him on Twitter. Um, he's got a great feed just filled with really interesting um, and meaningful writing. Thank you. Yeah. I try to focus on, you know, homeless policy, but fentanyl and drug policy too. And I'm at T Wolf at T Wolf recovery on Twitter and Michelle, I can't thank you enough for uh, all you've done for San Francisco. Cause I know you've done a lot. You've put a lot of effort and time into uh, building a platform to help the city and uh, you weather a lot of criticism. So do I, 
but uh, I just want you to know that you have an ally and a friend in me, and I'm really grateful for everything you've done for San Francisco. So thank you, and thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Talk again soon. All right. Thanks.